As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Our Michael McKee now in conversation with Charles Evans. I have had many, I had a long, long discussion with him years ago at the Council on Foreign Relations. And this is, you know, all the Fed presidents are hugely qualified and they're all very, very different. This is a bulletproof, freshwater academic on monetary policy and how it dovetails in to social policy. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Bloomberg's Michael McKee, live on TV and Bloomberg Radio Worldwide with a special guest, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans is joining us now. And Charlie, thanks uh, for coming in. It's nice to see somebody in person for a change. Morning, Mike. It's good to be here. A lot of people questioning now uh, whether the Fed is going to be uh, debating monetary policy or whether we're kind of locked in for the rest of the year. Uh, The Fed has said, and Jay Powell has said, 50 basis points at the next couple of meetings. Would you anticipate something like that running through December? Well, um, you know, we've been discussing uh, the state of the economy and inflationary pressures for quite some time, and uh, the committee has definitely coalesced around um, you know, moving off the effective lower bound, we've already, you know, begun doing that. And as Chair Powell said, we're going to be moving expeditiously towards something much more like a neutral Fed funds rate. Uh, my own assessment of neutral is in the two and a quarter to two and a half percent uh, range for the, the federal funds rate. Um, you know, as the chair has said, um, you know, we, we just did 50 and, you know, 50s are on the table for uh, some period of time. I would expect by the end of this year, it could be quite likely that we were at a neutral setting. And I think we would be very well positioned to address the um, you know, future inflationary pressures of 2023. I'm expecting things to improve from the very high inflation that we're having. But I do think that it's going to take us some time to uh, take care of this. Do you see any probability or possibility or reason to, that a 75 basis point move would come to the table? Well, I think it's very useful to front load our policy settings at the moment. We did 50 at our last meeting, and it's extremely likely that 50 at the next meeting and, you know, probably thereafter. You know, it's once we get to a good setting for the funds rate when we can sort of after that do a more measured pace of increases, say 25 basis points, 
at each meeting after that. I think that would be a nice shallow path that would give us time to assess the incoming data and know exactly uh, what we're facing. So um, if we do a little bit more sooner, then we can get to that point where we can do the shallow path or you know, maybe we take uh, 50s a little bit longer. But uh, you know, like I say, I think uh, something like neutral by the end of the year, whether or not you, you know, get there sooner or you know, earlier is not that that, that critical. It, it's uh, being well positioned to address the problems that we expect to face in 2023. That's uh, first, my first concern. How far above neutral do you think you may have to go to get the results you want? It's a hard question. Um, you know, it's nobody reports what the neutral setting of the Fed funds rate is. It moves around over time. It depends on whether or not we've got uh, tailwinds or at, at our back or headwinds that we're facing. And so I think we're going to be feeling our way around that, like I say, I've got a benchmark of what I think. And so if we go beyond that, if we go 50 basis points beyond that, 75 basis points beyond that, then that restrictive setting of policy should be working to bring inflation down. We don't have to constantly increase the funds rate to be restrictive. We can get to a restrictive setting and sit there for a while. Maybe we sit there longer at a less restrictive uh, you know, setting and it takes a little bit longer for inflation to come down, but there are many special factors that have led to the uh, very, very high inflation rate that we're facing. And so I'm hopeful that in uh, 2023, we're gonna be facing core PCE under 3%. Wall Street would like to know whether, if the economy slows, you're willing to slow the pace of rate increases to try to uh, keep the economy from falling down, uh, to keep us out of recession, or whether you will continue to be aggressive if inflation remains high. And I suppose that begs the question of whether you see a recession or not. So I'll, I'll leave those two questions for you. Right. Well, we have a dual mandate. You know, we, you know, we are um, you know, uh, trying to set the uh, monetary and financial conditions to uh, support uh, maximum employment and price stability at the moment. The price stability objective is the one that's most critical because you know at 8.3% you know, CPI, um, that's much too high. I think it's gonna be coming down. The labor market is doing extremely well. There's tremendous demand for workers and I'm hopeful that labor force participation will increase, but basically we have a vibrant labor market. So the you know, first order of business is getting inflation under control. Now, as we you know, get to a restrictive setting of monetary policy, I do expect that the economy is going to cool a little bit. By cooling, I mean we're still going to be having growth. I think the growth um, at trend levels, one and three quarters to two, um, one, trend is one and three quarters, but I'm looking for two, 2.2 percent um, as we continue to have a, a neutral to restrictive setting. And so that's consistent with growth. If we see something that's weaker than that, we'll have to see what that means for inflation. Uh, if inflation, the trajectory looks like it's confidently coming down and we're you know, going to hit our 2% objective or be close enough to it, then you know, we'd have a little more latitude. But at the moment, we really need to be focusing on inflation. Uh, what's your forecast for inflation over the next quarters and year? And I ask that in the context of what you're hearing from the CEOs in your district about whether they're still feeling price pressures, whether they still feel they have pricing power. Right. So when I talk to, um, you know, businesses, um, you know, C-suite individuals or, you know, small businesses, you know, they're facing a lot of cost pressures. And to the extent that they've been able to do it, they have passed along many of those cost pressures. Um, I think the days of how long they're going to be able to pass that along are probably numbered. I think consumers are, you know, getting uh, fed up with high prices and they can respond by shifting their expenditures. But, but businesses are, you know, facing those pressures. They've raised wages 
And in many cases where, you know, um, you know, six months, nine months ago, we heard that there were intense wage pressures. When wages have gone up, that has actually satisfied and improved the labor setting in those manufacturing plants. And so, you know, higher wages, um, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to keep going up each quarter, each month. And so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I feel confident that businesses are going to get on top of their labor costs and pricing behavior will be more in line with, um, you know, what I think price stability is. I can't reel off what, you know, inflation is going to be three months from now or six months from now because there are a lot of real factors that could play out in different ways. And that's part of what we're going to be looking for. You know, if we get to a neutral setting by the end of this year, we're going to have, you know, many, many more months of data to see is the trajectory coming down or do we still have a real problem on our hands and we need to be much more restrictive. Um, we are talking with Chicago Fed President uh, Charles Evans. Uh, let me follow that up with a, a question not from me, the professional economist, uh, uh, markets watcher, but from the average American, when am I going to feel like my paycheck is keeping up with inflation? Yeah, I mean, it's been very difficult for uh, households, obviously. Gas prices have been extremely high. Food prices are high. I think worldwide factors are an enormous uh, part of that. Um, you know, um, energy supplies, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is hitting uh, you know, gas prices, agricultural prices, you know, a lot of uh, uh, weed is produced in Ukraine and that has global implications and all of that. Um, we have very strong demand. So it's, you know it, it, you know, it makes sense. It's what everybody is dealing with, higher prices, shortages. You can't necessarily get exactly the product that you want and it's a lot higher. I'm hopeful that as inflation comes down, hopefully some of those prices will revert and they'll, they'll come down. Food prices often you know, can, can round trip and uh, energy prices too. But gas prices are high and that's always, you know, a, a negative thing for consumer confidence if we can get that in better shape. But that's not monetary policy, that's sort of supply uh, conditions. And wages have gone up, so I think incomes, incomes have gone up and, you know, the labor market is good. People who want a job can get a job. That's good for household income. If we can get labor force participation up and some child care, adult care issues uh, resolved, keep everybody in schools, that'll be beneficial for um, the economy. Have you been surprised by the strength of ongoing consumer spending uh, that people are still buying a lot of stuff basically? It has been strong, hasn't it? And you know, some of that I think is the fiscal support but was very helpful for many households that otherwise would be um, in, in very difficult situations. Um, I think that you know, the growth of the economy, many people are doing extremely well, even if it's um, unequally shared. And so sometimes those retail sales, you know, come from sort of a skewed distribution of, you know, um, uh, consumers. And so um, it's nice that the fiscal support packages and the strong uh, labor market, which has helped uh, lower income uh, workers, you know, get jobs at better wages and also at better schedules, probably more full time. I mean, that's been beneficial. And so I think that's contributed to the strength in retail, and I hope that it continues. When you think about uh, going forward, how much confidence do you have in your ability to bring inflation down, given that you've mentioned COVID and Ukraine and all of the other things that are going on that are supply side problems, and the Fed works on the demand side? Oh, that's right. That's right. I mean, <clears throat> you know, at one level, I'm extremely confident that we can bring inflation down. Inflation is the, you know, ever increasing uh, prices of all goods. And, you know, that's a monetary phenomenon. And the setting of the federal funds rate, the policy rate can address that. 
What I'm not confident about is we can't bring down gas prices. If gas prices are going to be very high because of real factors, um, low inflation is going to be, well, they're high, but they're not continuing to go up. But those are real factors, and it's another set of public policies that need to deal with that. Food prices are the same way. I'm confident that the setting of monetary policy can keep them from ever increasing. They could stay high on a relative basis compared to other prices for longer than most people would like, but we can get inflation down. Um, you know, it probably would take a more restrictive setting of monetary policy if those uh, special factors continue to be high. Before we let you go, let me ask you about the balance sheet because that's the other side of your monetary policy that has to uh, play out. Uh, what do you anticipate happening when you start lowering the balance sheet? Should we see a rise in interest rates at the long end because it was designed to push them down at the long end? And if so, by how much? That's right. So we've uh, increased our balance sheet dramatically, and we've uh, announced that we're going to let maturing assets roll off. We chose among the most aggressive roll-off um, um, paths that, that we could. So I think we're going to get our balance sheet down to a more normal level before very long. That will have a restrictive effect on financial markets that sometimes is measured, I think, for what we're looking at. It may be, it's the same as if we'd increase the federal funds rate by 50 basis points on top of what we're actually doing. So we do have that restrictive setting. I tend to think that markets are forward-looking. They are. And they price this in pretty much when they know what it is. So I think that effect is already working its way through financial markets. And we've seen long rates go up some. We've seen borrowing rates, auto rates, mortgage rates go up. And so I think it's having that effect. That's helped somewhat with the front loading of restrictive monetary policies. And so that's, you know, we're, we're probably better positioned to be bringing inflation down uh, because of that. So, um, you know, I think that's working pretty much as we were hoping. Well, we wish you luck. Thank you very much, Charles Evans, for joining us today, the president of the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Let's get to Anna Han, equity strategist at Wells Fargo Securities. Anna, the margin pressure from Walmart to Target. Your thoughts, please. Well, it's certainly a big indicator. Like you mentioned earlier, they employ a lot of people. And as people have a tighter labor market, and yet if people are spending less, the question is, can really companies pass long price? But keep in mind also, John, this is sort of what we're looking for, right? We wanted to see demand cool off a bit to balance things, to bring inflation more under control. So, you know, it's sort of the what we were hoping for, but also a little concerning on how much this raises the possibility of recession. 
fashion. And we're looking at the physics of a rocket launch right now, and they mentioned the maximum dynamic pressure. You did this ballet uh, in your physics of undergraduate. Let's cut to the chase, Anna. Are we at the maximum dynamic pressure of inflation right now? We do think generally inflation measures have peaked, but I think it's going to be, you know, using uh, Chairman Powell's uh, language here, um, it's going to be harder to get that soft-ish landing. I think it's going to be harder to bring down that figure. Right. People were hoping that when we got this sort of 8% uh, headline number that it could come right back down, but we're seeing that's going to take several more quarters. But Anna, what's so important here, let's go astronautical again, uh, aeronautical again if we can, uh, Anna. The, the acceleration function is a squared function. Guessing time on the x-axis is the hardest thing to do in this racket. What are the determinants you're going to use to guess when inflation rolls over? I think one is a dynamic between really how does that good spending go versus the service spending. I think also to see what is a dynamic between when you have a tight labor market and companies are able to or have to be competitive and raise wages so that consumers actually have more to spend, but how will that offset with actually companies being able to pass along price because consumers have more money to spend? And then a third component I think that we're underappreciating here is right now household wealth is very heavily tied to the equity markets. I think we saw a historical amount of nearly a quarter of household wealth is tied to equity. So when equities are down like this, it can weigh on consumer sentiment. If we stay down at these levels, you could see sort of that souring sentiment really start bleeding into consumer spending. These are the indicators we're watching, but we're not quite convinced yet that consumer is really decelerating. Anna, can you elaborate what you said, which is that this uh, particular series of reports is a little concerning with how much it raises the risk of recession. How so? Well, when you talk about what is the possibility of recession, for us, it's still a tail probability. It is not our base case. And we still put the possibility of a recession by end of 2023 at around 30%. So that's actually quite low compared to where some people are on the street. But the main driver and something that we've all focused on and relied on to pull us out of the recession post-pandemic and continue to drive our economy has been the U.S. consumer. The strength of spending and that willingness to spend not just on goods, but as COVID uh, was relaxed, as lockdowns relaxed, on experiences and get out there and travel and put that money to work and circulate through the economy. So if that driver starts to cool down, then becomes the concern, are margins really coming under pressure enough that earnings growth will turn negative, that GDP growth could turn negative. Again, not our base case, Lisa, but the tail risks could be getting bigger here. So there have been a number of strategists that have come on and said they still like consumer discretionary because there has been such a wave of spending and because of the strength in the consumer. Would you back away from that kind of idea based on what we're seeing right now in these numbers? I wouldn't particularly back away, but perhaps it wouldn't be our number one call here. And just to keep in mind, you know, some part of that, we've been actually pretty negative on the retailing space to begin with, but we're still a positive on the sources where you can have leisure spending, where you can have those reopening trades, the travel tied industries. Uh, on the other hand, what we've been looking at very carefully, especially with the more tightening of the uh, monetary policy here, has been the growth style. You've seen it beaten down so badly this year, and you've seen the, we think we're starting to see the bottom for the growth style. So we're starting to warm up to it again. Anna, when we look at the market adjustment here, 
It is off central banks. It is off the Fed. I'm focused on the nonlinearity of their Fed decisions they have to make. It's frankly true for ECB as well. Link equity market performance into the massive challenges the Fed has after the July 27 meeting. You know, you bring up a great point, Tom, is how are equities going to handle it if the Fed continues to tighten and we start to really see that GDP growth slow? For us, we do expect GDP to come down, but we also still think that unemployment rates could come even lower. And in that kind of environment, again, where jobs and wage growth is uh, aggressive and wages are going higher, we still think a possibility that equities can go higher from here. Our price target remains 47.15. And there's a reason for that. We think that there could be a change in the leadership here. Again, if growth has bottomed and we start getting a better handle of inflation, that's going to bode much better for these uh, growth sectors. And they are still a large part of the S&P 500. Anahan, thank you. Anahan of Wells Fargo Securities. Joseph Feldman is with us. He holds court with Dana Telsey at the Telsey Advisory Group. We can talk about Walmart and Target. But Joe Feldman, I want to talk about what you and I lived April 2nd, 2013, the real codification of Reg FD. Are these corporations afraid to give guidance to animals like you? <laughs> well, I, I think the corporations are certainly afraid to give interquarter commentary that would, you know, give too much of an insight into how the earnings might show up. And when doing so, they do have to make things broadly public and available at the same time. So that that definitely plays into this. Um, and, and I do think that you, you, you've seen uh, corporations act differently. I've seen investor relations professionals get fired over it. So I think people are very careful to not give too much interquarter information. Joe, I struggle when I see a stock down 22% off the back of earnings on something that should not be a surprise. Costs. They seem to be struggling with something, Joe, that was obvious to everyone. I don't get that. If we've got a big execution problem at a single name or more broadly, and when you see two data points, it feels like a broader story. It feels like, Joe, from my perspective and others too looking in, they're struggling to find the right balance. These companies have gone from being understaffed to overstaffed undersupplied to oversupplied. And Joe, all of a sudden, there's all this inventory and they don't know what to do with it. Joe, how do you find the right balance in an economy moving this fast? Yeah, I, I, and I think that's really the challenge. And, and something actually Doug McMillan talked about yesterday was the speed of all of this, that it's really hard to adjust the, the business that quickly to play some catch up. Uh, obviously, the consumer is moving and changing quite rapidly. And I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, the the retailers, we saw this with Amazon, too, where they kind of were building out <clears throat> to the capacity that they needed at the time during the height of the pandemic, and now you're seeing uh, some of the give back. What's really interesting here is if you go back in history, tar- uh, Target's gross margin has pretty been very stable at right around 28%. Obviously, this quarter it really dropped a lot to 25.5%, and their guidance for the year would imply that it's going to be certainly well below the 28 uh, maybe more like 25, 26. I think that's transitory. And I know the stock's down a lot right now. And But if you kind of really look closely at that line item and look at the way they're operating the rest of the business, there's a lot of pressures right now on the supply chain, on fuel costs, yeah. on, on 
everything that's just hurting the business right now. I had a brain freeze there, Joe Feldman, because I just got the fuel cost of the Gulf Stream to Davos. Wow, Lisa, that has gone up, to say the <laughs> least. Regulation FD, I put 2013 wrong. That was a little bit ago, 1999 on Reg FD. Lisa? I think I see that little violin in the corner that's just very, yes, very small. Thank you. I think yeah. that, look, I, I don't think that that's probably where people's focuses are uh, on the jet stream. However, there is this issue of what comes next? What's the next shoe to drop after we saw Walmart and Target. Joe, what's your sense here of the other players that will also see similar hits that are not yet priced in? Well, I think that, you know, those that have more discretionary businesses are are likely to see some pressure. Um, You know, we've been pleasantly surprised, actually, to see like Home Depot and Lowe's have been performing fairly well, um, you know, in in the face of this. And everybody thought, well, home was going to be done and it's not. Uh, at least home improvement is not, but it does feel like we've seen a slower trend in apparel and in um, in other discretionary categories like home furnishings. That is where we see some concerns. So some of the other discounters uh, may be under some pressure today. Uh, you know, I, I think <clears throat> y- you have to just start worrying about everybody on the gross margin side and and see how that profitability could be impacted by that, even with stronger sales like we just saw from Walmart and Target. Joe, before we let you go, can you just frame this moment? How much of a turning point this is for a lot of the consumer discretionary areas and frankly, the consumer staple companies like grocery stores and others, especially in light of the surprise in the C-suite that to a lot of us shouldn't have been such a surprise? Yeah, I, I think that we were all assuming that the supply chain pressures have been fully factored in at this point, and they're just not. And we are definitely seeing a slowdown or a change in consumer behavior where there's more of a focus on, as you said, consumables, basics, getting to work and just drive it, you know, paying those high gas prices right now. And I think that that lends well to the more the CPG companies that are out there and the, 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 the uh, grocers and other value-oriented retail. Uh, where people are going to be looking to save money right now. Joe, thank you, buddy. As always, great perspective. Joe Foundman there of Towsie Advisory Group. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Kit Jukes thinks we need to talk more about Europe, so let's get to Kit Jukes now. The chief FX strategist at SocGen. Kit, your words. ECB rates have been negative for almost eight years. If the economy can sustain positive rates within the next year, the euro will be a lot stronger when it happens. If. Kit, let's talk about the if. How big is that if? Huge, enormous. I mean, okay, so the first piece is obviously the short term. Um, elephants in the room, downside risk, which is what if the gas gets turned off uh, and natural gas gets really, really expensive? That's bad for everybody, but it's spectacularly bad for Europe. So um, I don't see how we avoid a recession if that happens. Even the EU Commission admits or pretty much admits uh, that, that, that we'll get a recession if that happens. So that, that's the first piece um, the, the second piece, you know, they've been going one way, really, lower and lower rates for, for long enough that, that, you know, the first turn upwards will have a, a significant market reaction. And, and already, you know, we have clients asking, you know, where is the, where is the real sensitive point on the spread between peripheral and, and German bond yields mm-hmm. in Europe? Uh, you know, all of these things. So, I mean, I would put the, the if in, in, in sort of, you know, three foot high capital letters. Um, it's... Um, it's, it's, uh, it's even less likely than Arsenal making the Champions League. Kit, the hallmark of your work is in a few paragraphs, you squeeze in a lot on a lot of different countries, cultures, and economies. Right now, there is a massing, excuse my French folks, pissing match in the United Kingdom over the governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, the ex-governor, going after him, Ambrose Evans Pritchard in The Telegraph and others coming to the defense of economists who put their legs uh, their pants on one leg at a time. What's the Kit Juke scorecard on how central bankers worldwide are doing? Uh, they're doing their best. Look, I mean, the only analogy I can have for central bankers at the moment is we're saying, can Tom Hanks land his plane on the Hudson? But his plane this time, it didn't have a bird strike. It was hit with a bird strike. Then it was hit with uh, an electrical storm. Then it was hit with lightning. And then President Putin fired a missile at it. I- which, which Tom Hanks can do that for all the movies we've ever seen? So I, I give them a break. They had no chance. They did their best by flooding the system with money uh, back at the start of the pandemic. And since then, they're, they're literally... I, it's why in the end we'll get a recession because this is too hard. Well, uh, and, and, and critics can, can criticize for all that. Kit, when you say we're going to get a recession, you're talking about Europe. I know that you and your colleagues don't believe that the U.S. necessarily is headed for a recession. Do you think that those dualities are basically priced into the euro uh, U.S. dollar already? Or do you think this has more to go and you could get to parity and beyond? I think the trouble with the euro, to me, is back to that issue with, um, with, with a stoppage to the gas, which brings the recession forwards in terms of time uh, and, and breaks through. And I can't, I, can't measure, I can't measure the downside to the euro from that or the probability of it happening. So how can I buy the euro? It's just, that's why I find it un, unbuyable at this point in time. And I would go on trading. But yes, there is a big difference in the US and Europe. I'm not sure it's completely pressed in. I, I definitely think it's why treasury yields have got more upside. We have not seen the peak yet. Uh, and when that happens, I suspect I'll see lower levels in, in the euro before we're done. I would say, though, you know, we will get a recession. I mean, models struggle with the recession because it's difficult to work out the accumulated effect of being bombarded by so many once every five year shocks in a two year period. Kit, you sound like a hard landing guy. You just said we'll get a recession. That's not really the call, though, is it? It's about magnitude and timing. Where are you on that? <laughs> I, I kind of think next year is really the difficult year, but it, but it could come again. There are things that can make it come forward. So, you know, 
um, when, you, when you're talking about um, oil prices are up and then saying that other prices are up more, every other version of oil that I use is up more than, than crude. So yeah. up most is jet fuel. Um, diesel's up a lot. Heating oil's up a lot. You know, so they're all, they're all up by more than crude. So if we get another push higher in crude, it's going to really hurt. If this summer's harvests give us brutal food prices, that's going to really hurt. The housing market in the UK is just threatening to roll over now and yours could follow. So, um, so I, I would say recessions are pretty likely in 2023 uh, in lots of places. I think it's, it's just plain blind luck if we can avoid them. With, with, the, with the number of, of, of pressures coming to the system. Um, but Europe is is right in the firing line. That's really the problem. Okay, awesome to catch up. And just remember, you brought up Arsenal. Tom ignored it, and I didn't mention it, okay? Just no, remember. we're trying to be, you we, know, it's... it's <laughs> we're still friends. Kit Jukes is such a kid. Thank you, buddy. We're going to get right to it here, because time is... So special with Douglas Cass. He was a Seabreeze Partners as a trader. As Paul mentioned earlier, he has been gifted on caution. He's gotten a little more optimistic recently. Doug, what do you do when Bank of America's Michael Hartnett says cash levels are back to the gloom after September 11th of 2001? What does young Cass do amid the gloom? Are you referring to the gloom of the Boston Red Sox? I knew <laughs> you're going there. You know, it, like uh, you, you honestly think I, I wouldn't broach the subject of Major League Baseball? Dan Ives, you know, is, you know, the Boston Red Sox are the new Baltimore Orioles. Oh, oh those are fighting <laughs> and words. By the way, and by the way, I'll, I'll get to you. The, I'll field your question in a second. But the Yankees <laughs> are now uh, on pace with a winning percentage of 0.750 be better than the two greatest Yankee teams in history in 19. You got you think these guys are as solid as 27. Look, for the first time in the history of the franchise through 35 games, three players, Rizzo, Stanton and Judge hit 10 homers or more. This is amazing. Is Brian Cashman and the, and a genius? And they're, and they're I thought pitching, Brian Cashman was useless. Up. And now now can you remind me what the question was? <laughs> oh, yeah. The question was, the cash buildup that's out there is on the edge of Red Sox gloom. What do you do when you see sure. everybody I'll, I'll, saying, go to cash? Sure. I'll frame my view right now, which is a lot different than the view that I've expressed to you, Paul and John, uh, in the last 12 months. Um, I continue to find myself of the view that the consensus has very abruptly shifted from uh, wearing rose-colored glasses of complacency in late 2021 to now being fearful and embracing many of the long-held fundamental concerns I had of slugflation, um, geopolitical risks in a flat world, high valuations, persistent supply chain problems, and obviously too elevated economic and profit expectations. So last week I began for the first time to increase our net long exposure on the dip on Wednesday and Thursday as to me, getting back to your question about capitulation, market participants seem to have already capitulated, uh, providing potential uh, positive optionality. We began the year, while most participants were unprepared, we were prepared. I started up Seabreeze at the end of um, last year. By the way, Seabreeze Partners, LP.com is our new website, uh, and our commentary is on that. Um, and I'm happy to say that we're not only up for the month, we're positive for all of 2020, 2022, which puts us in good stead against our peers 
and uh, against the markets. Um, everyone, me, was offside at the end of last year and is starting to go offside this year. They were bulled up as we entered the year, and now they're bared up after a very large market drawdown. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that forced uh, liquidation and defensive posturing um, on the yeah. part of the marginal investor hedge funds remains a very right. important and constructive part of my argument. Yeah, the forced liquidation rally is ahead. Yeah. The forced liquidation was a Red Sox pitcher after one and two thirds innings going back to the dugout. <laughs> Paul, Doug, no, I mean, seriously, seriously, Tom, um, I've I've observed over time the tops are processes. We saw an important one, I believe, in late 2021, when the market was top heavy with all the fangs, when the rest of the market was foundering, and that bottoms are events. So. To me, capitulation was the event when you force retail and institutional liquidation and hedge funds owing to all these redemption requests. It's very important to recognize that in our financial markets, the strongest known gravitational force is produced by the presence of stop losses and liquidations imposed by leverage. The larger the stop, the greater the pull. So we have a, this non-virtuous cycle of forced hedge fund selling because of bad performance that led to redemptions, yep. and that was a key factor in changing <clears throat> my market view. But there's a whole bunch of other statistics that I could tell you. For example, the 60-40 stock bond strategy. Oh, I looked at it last know, week. The return was – it was the worst okay. return in the history – in a century, minus 12%. Okay. Do you know what the second worst performance year to date what? Quickly. through April was in yeah. history? Four percent. So is three x that. Okay, guys, this is so 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 important. Well, I did this a week ago, Doug. I did it myself, Paul. This is so important, Doug. Cass, how do you do equities with the record bond losses we have? I mean, I I, I'm absolutely fascinated by the financial industry certitude. Bonds never go down, and we're having a bear market. You and I never. I, you, you and I, I mean, Babe Ruth didn't see a bear market like this. Right. Well, um, in terms of bonds, I think today's target report is pretty important. Um, and let me let me tie it into fixed income. Um, one of the one of the the primary concerns, Paul, we had uh, going into 2022 was that lower demand from higher prices seemed inevitable, and. Price elasticity of demand uh, is something we learn in economics classes. It measures the responsiveness of the quantity demanded or supplied of a good to a change in its price. Right. It's computed by the percentage change in quantity demanded or supplied divided by the percentage change in price. Oh, boy. And elasticity can be described as elastic or very responsive or inelastic, not very responsive. So we've been fearful for some time that whether it's a $1,200 smartphone from Apple a cup of Starbucks coffee, uh, groceries at Walmart and Costco, Down or used Ford F-150, lower demand from higher prices is today's reality. But this is why it's positive, and everyone is going to be selling into it. All right, so Doug, when, when I see The good it- news, as you said, in the prior segment, is the cure for higher inflation is higher inflation. Right. And the sort of reaction is ultimately good news from the standpoint of the Fed, which will probably not be as hawkish right. as so, I assumed and many assumed. Let Paul get in here because he... <laughs> so, Doug, I mean, I'm a big fan of Target. When I see a $100 billion market cap stock, it's a real company, real demand, real customers, you know, real cash flow, real earnings down 25%. What does that tell you? It tells me if I had a 4% invested position in Walmart, 
my portfolio just lost one percent today. Yep. <laughs> I'll be honest with with you. I guess, um, I mean, I... Great, this is an environment, Paul, where uh, the men are separated from the boys, and I may be a, still be a boy. I don't, I'm not sure yet, <laughs> even though we're up on the year. Um, but you know, yeah. Uh, so uh, where do you where do you dip your toes here, Doug? I mean, if 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 you feel like you've seen some type of capitulation, where are you dipping your right. toes? What's here a cast to do sure. list? Well, right I would now. say that the two areas really quickly are um, the banks, which is by far my largest position. I okay. have a lot of background. Then what else? Um, and and home builders. All right. Okay. Doug, I've got to ask about Amazon very quickly here. Cloud on fire, cardboard boxes, not so much. You've been long Amazon. You say it's even a long-term hold. Doug Cass on Amazon this May. Uh, we markedly reduced our exposure to Amazon at around 3200 I have a tag-end position, which I plan on increasing. Okay, Doug Cass. Thank you. Can you come on the next time the Yankees win? <laughs> I'm not available tomorrow morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.